don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. It's not the Workington man that matters anymore, it's the Workington woman. We were joined by Tristan Hotham, who is a PhD researcher from the University of Bath and who spent the last four years examining how political parties are using social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter in their campaigning. Yes, we're a month away from another UK general election and one thing's for sure, social media is going to play a massive part in the results. But you don't need to be a pollster to understand the impact that social has had over the past 11 years. Coincidentally, that's the same amount of time that Tristan has been looking at the relationship between politics and social media. And within this podcast, we touched on many different points, including where even platforms stand on the political spectrum. What does the political landscape look like now as a result of social? And what does Tristan believe the future will hold, be that for younger generations, political parties, and even the way leaders campaign. In a way, social media has allowed former and big-scale politicians who, who the public know to, to remain important for longer. All this and more, coming up. How is social changing the tactics around political campaigning? Well, it's a big question, and I think we need to appreciate that we're really in the thin end of the wedge when it comes to this stuff. When I started studying Facebook like four years ago, there was not really very much research. And people, for example, 2010 was thought of as having a bit of social media. 2015 had quite a bit. 2017 had a lot. And now for this general election campaign, everyone's like, it's going to be social media everywhere. Mm. But we are very much at the thin end of the wedge. We don't really know very much of what's going on. It's very hard to analyze. And as we go forwards into the future, I think it's important that we put pressure on, on groups like Facebook to open up and make it more transparent so people like me can do our job, which is you know, hold the powerful to account. Mm. But in terms of how it's impacting campaigning and the political parties, well, they, they bloody love it <laughs> because they have a whole retinue of tools that they didn't have even in 2010. And they're getting better at using them. Mm. Yeah, they're behind your sort of, I don't know, marketing agency such as yourself. But they're, they're learning all the time how yeah. to do really quite impressive things. Mm. And within all of this, we must appreciate that we are actually the product here. We're also the sort of lab rats within a giant experiment because they're learning off us and our interactions and engagement, how to improve their content, what to tell us, what to sell us. Mm. And that's OK if you're, you know, trying to sell a, a toothbrush or something. Mm. But if you're trying mm. to sell, you know, something very negative in a political sense, then we really need to make sure that we have checks and balances for what's going on. Yeah, definitely. And I know, obviously, you've been doing research for, do you say, four years. What can you tell us about your key findings? So a bit like I was saying, you know, there was a bit of social media 2010, a bit more in 2015, and then getting, you know, steadily ascending as we're going forwards. In terms of the way parties have been approaching social media, especially my focus is, is Facebook, mm. is that it's sort of become more complicated and more multifaceted. So in 2010, you kind of had the party set up party pages. So there was like, look, the conservatives are on Facebook and isn't it novel? Mm. And they would send out sort of arcane, boring messages designed for party members, yeah? Yeah. In 2015, you know, they've really grasped that actually people would spread the messages and you could reach the general public. Mm. Yeah. And so, like, you had some humor and stuff like this. It was, it was still very broadcast, is what I would say. 
But at the same time, behind the scenes, you also had like the micro targeting coming in as well. Yeah. So it really went from zero to 100 very quickly. And that's all partly due to the Obama administration and campaigns in, in 2008 and 2012. And in many ways, we still in Britain are behind what they did in the, in the United States across those elections. So, yeah, we, we've moved further forwards then. But then by 2017, you have the Labour Party coming, finally activating online efficiently. Because in 2015, they, they thought they were going to have this online to offline engagement and people, you know, sharing stuff and then going out on the streets. But it, yeah. it didn't really happen. But Jeremy Corbyn, along with Momentum, you know, pushing mimetic viral videos, you know, stuff that people actually genuinely mm. wanted to watch. It, it, it really did change the game. And, mm. and you had the Tory targeted campaign versus essentially the sort of people power Labour campaign. Yeah. And you saw what happened is that everyone, no one expected mm. general election 17's results to be what they were. Yeah. And now we head into general election 19. And a little bit of me thinks it's going to be a bit similar, you know? I hope so. I hope it's going to be similar, but like more. For me, I think um, what you just touched on about it being broadcast, that's how I've always seen the Conservatives in the UK, their approach to social. Whereas what I noticed with Corbyn's campaign in 2017 was it was very... Um, there was a lot of UGC involved. So he got on Snapchat, Mm. created that um, filter, that custom lens, Mm -hmm. and then that's inviting everyone else to sort of spread it and it's so representative of like the people's movement i think it's very like telling in their approaches um you know it's very telling about how they operate in like their belief system oh 100 percent. i, I want to touch on something you just mentioned because i'm not that clued up on it the obama administration what did mm. they do that changed things they were doing like micro targeting of, of voter groups and activation through their own apps that would get people to go out and canvas certain areas of certain demographics in certain seats that they thought were opportune for change. Right. They knew what they were doing. They they basically if you go and look at any of the research on micro targeting digital campaigning, mm. half of it is on the Obama campaigns. That's interesting. So they were just targeting persuadables. Well, they 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 knew back then how to target persuadables or at least floating voters. Then why is the Trump administration getting in so much trouble for doing just that? It's 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 quite funny because it's the same with everything else. The Obama campaigns were doing more or less most of what we see now. There's a few areas that have advanced since then, mm. but generally the whole micro-targeting of voters is what the Obama campaign was. It mm. was their bread and butter, and they were they were really good at it. Yeah, you know they were good at it. It's it's obviously they're not spreading the, lies. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're heading into a new dynamic now. If you have this incredibly powerful tool of Facebook and social media and big data and machine learning. And you have it in the hands of a sensible, nice person. You might go like, "Yeah, that's all right. I think we'll we'll let that happen." Yeah, and that's the system we've had up until we had these slightly more edgier, I'll call them, mm. political and uh, parties in power. Yeah, and now we're starting to go. Should they actually have those tools? Mm. When the results start going the other way, isn't it? I want, yeah. I want want to ask on that one. It's a it's a big question. It's a loaded question. It's a question that comes up time and time again. But do you think institutions like Facebook are, and you know, and what they're doing, does that threaten democracy, or is it just that democracy as we know it has changed? <laughs> I mean, it's an as if you go on Twitter every day, it's an absolute hate train for Facebook. Twitter obviously now has recently banned political advertising, mm-hmm. but no one ever was using it for political advertising, at least in the UK anyway. No, and the, in America, I understand that most of the political advertisers on Twitter are like sort of advocacy groups, sort of Greenpeace, these sort of things. Think people that you kind of like, yeah, we, they should do a targeted advertising. <laughs> um, they're trying to save the world or whatever. 
So on the on the Twitter point, yeah, it's a, it's a big hate train. I mean, I would actually quite like to write a book called like In Defense of Facebook, mm. because in terms of the organic stuff, it's great. You can chat to your nan across the other side of the world. Yeah, you know, you can talk talk to people, see their holiday photos or whatever. Events is useful. There's a lot of good things about it. Most of the time, it's not as horrible and trolling as Twitter. Yet Twitter is now like the golden child of the academic world and the sort of commentators on because social media. Because it's taken a stance of to ban political ads? And I, think it's, sort of, I think it's been happening for a while. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. think it's because Facebook is more full of normal people. Mm-hmm. And that means that it's also slightly more right-wing. Mm-hmm. And it's also... There is a bit of an elitism about Twitter. There is. It's, it's a, it, Twitter's a weird place full of weirdos like myself. About 6% of, of the British public... And about, I can't remember, it's like, just don't, this is not an exact quote, but like sort of 3%, you know, generating the news and the content on there. So you have a whole host of people who just follow and read stuff. And then you have like a Mm. tiny, tiny number of people who create stuff on Twitter. And yet they, I suppose, think that that's normal. Mm. And I suppose when I'm on there, I think it's normal. The the, the, the problem is though, isn't it? I mean, maybe the echo chamber does exist, but the echo chamber is so apparent I suppose you could say mm. on Facebook mm. if I, I think it is on um, Twitter as well I honestly do yeah I, I guess it all comes down to user base in a way doesn't it yeah. like the fact that there are so much more people on Facebook like you said mm. you know ordinary people mm. it is very likely that if you are obviously mm. uh, somebody who's has a history of voting conservative yeah. conservative mm. views Apart from question time and other stuff, you'll you'll very rarely get, you know, um mm. exposed to Lib Dem messages or Labour messages yeah. or whatever. So I feel um I feel quite bad because sometimes, you know, I feel like we're aiding that message slightly in what we say. Because so there are like a few different debates at work. One of one of them's massive, it's the whole mental health issue on social media. And advice is always, you know, you can curate your own timeline, you can choose to follow people that only say things that, you know, make you feel mm. nice and it's all right, no one's making you sad. Um, and a lot of the time that comes down to following people who you've chosen that likely have the same interests as you. With Facebook, it's going to be like your existing close network. With Twitter, it's people that you've selected. Um, and they are going to have the same opinions as you, most likely, which is why echo chambers come around. Mm. But um, So this morning, Twitter actually released a new update where you can follow topics and not just handles, not people. Um, so say if I was following Brexit as a topic, you'd assume I'd get uh, opinions from both sides, which is a step in the right direction, I think, to get rid of the yeah, filter bubble on, on Twitter. Yeah, where does pol- politics come into that mush then where you kind of... Yeah. Like, on Facebook, for instance. I would just say from a political science point of view, you know, back in the, before social media, basically everyone was in an echo chamber, except we had mainstream broadcast news. Yeah. And people, I don't think, were, you know, they had knew more about democracy or how it operated. In fact, they probably knew less. This tool, the internet we have, is is super powerful mm. and amazing. It's woken everyone up to it, I think. It's it's woke echo <laughs> echo chambers are not are not a problem per se. It's just the weaponization of communications to target certain ones. As you said, the lack of ability to follow different different groups and different mm. ideas. Mm. But I, I see again, it's like coming back to deeper political malaise, you know, this, div- this you know, sort of people on the left and the right moving apart, this mm. polarization, radicalization of not of very many people. Because again, if you're going back to the average person, they're in an echo chamber of their family, mm. their job, their newspaper they read, and occasionally going on social media to look at, at photos. Mm. We're talking about, again, it's like 5% of the people. 
But yeah, we should do more for those 5% because they're the ones who lead others towards dis- destinations, political yeah. destinations. So. I find it um, interesting that you said no one uses Twitter for political advertisements. Obviously, like, you've been doing a lot it of research. It was £60,000 at the 2017 general election, apparently, oh. across all the parties. It's peanuts compared to what Facebook gets. Which is, we, we saw a stat this morning uh, that we talked about as well, which was, uh, I think, Twitter in total worldwide only made $3 million from political advertising in 2018, which justifies that sort of statement yeah. there. The, the ban. It's, it's, it's a paltry amount. Even with that considered, do you agree with it? Uh, with what? With, with Twitter's um, ban? I think that my problem is I've researched social media too much. I know what people like on social media. And they like negative, personalized communications that attack people and attack big ideas that use humor and often a lowest common denominator. You know, if you if you get rid of targeted advertising, yeah, you get rid of a tool that can be used by bad people, but you also get rid of a tool that can be used by good people. Mm. And we're talking about having a more radicalized political landscape, yeah? So then if we don't have the capacity to reach different people with with sensible messages, hypothetically, and we just leave it to organic, then UKIP were the biggest party on Facebook from 2013 to 2015. Yeah, we know like the, the Donald, bigger accounts win Donald more with Trump, organic. Donald Trump, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. glad you mentioned UKIP though, Tristan, because I was going to ask how, you know, if we look at the political landscape from like a rudimentary sort of view, the Tories have always had the money, the Labour's have relied on, you know, the unions and the donors and stuff. Has social made it a level playing field when political ads do cost money in a way what i'm interested to see what the balance between organic and paid actually looks like well it's interesting because i think 2015 when we had the biggest vote share for smaller parties you i don't know if you remember there was that campaign for sort of one was it the one million march or something for the four million people who only got sort of five mps Mm. uh, across ukip uh, green party and i think it was lib dems and a few others and that was also played out on facebook on social media. So there was a very fractured base there in terms of engagement with the different parties. And But of that, yeah, UKIP was huge. There's a reason we ended up having a referendum and have voted to leave the European Union. And that's because of the activity of UKIP on things like Facebook. Mm. They, they agitated and created a whole movement in a way a bit like the sort of Corbyn thing. But we're talking 2013, 2014, all around Farage as mm-hmm. that character. And they were huge and they have changed our political history. Mm. But since then, you know, small parties can only do so much. They they eventually die and get subsumed and the yeah. bigger parties come along and, and survive. And so since then we've had this, you know, but in a way UKIP never died because we're all still talking about leaving the mm. EU, aren't we? Well, it's like the Brexit party now and they actually mm. have like quite a sophisticated social media strategy Indeed. for, for paid targeting. Indeed. And they, they are spending a, quite a lot of money, at least at the moment. So I was looking at some targeted ads for for the Brexit party, and they really are trying to target this Workington man uh, sort of voter stereotype. Mm. And it's quite interesting because I was also looking at the Conservatives, and they're not. So the Conservatives in these sorts of Workington-style seats are actually targeting the Workington woman, yeah? Mm. Which I think is a super interesting thing. I'm going to write a piece on this soon. Mm. But uh, I think that there was this poll in Workington, yeah? And yeah, the, the men, they go heavily for Conservative and then Brexit party and then Labour. But the women, they go, yeah, they're still Brexit party quite a lot and and Conservatives, but Labour was doing much better. Mm. So if you want to win that seat and you're a Conservative, or if you want to defend it and you're Labour, it's not the Workington man that matters anymore. It's the Workington woman. Mm. And that goes, again, as I said, was telling you before we started the podcast, 
this election, I believe, will be won not by working to men, but by northern sort of Labour leave voting women. You hear that, ladies? Or, vote. Go and vote. Yeah, <laughs> or, or the women who live in these sorts of seats. So that's where the Conservatives will win or lose. Tristan, how has the rhetoric changed in terms of political advertising? Because it used to be quite... I don't want to say sleek, but, you know, look at advertising. We've got lines like Labour isn't working and stuff like that. And it was all quite uh, done quite, done in quite a smart way. Has it cheapened somewhat on social as you, you sort of talked about being like kind of meme like or? We, we have created the current situation with our viewing habits. Yeah. Mm. You know what we like. We like silly memes and like things that catch your eye. Mm. And that's what's happening now. So the Tories basically had no adverts for the last two days. And last night they started, they had their first new advert. Mm. And it's like a sort of vaporwave, Andrew Yang style, uh, sort of 1980s Boris wave sort of advert video for Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, you should, you should check it it's out. So it's, just, yeah. it's got like a sort of like funky 80s music background. And then like Boris Johnson going like, like almost like lyrically singing, Good, good Brexit done. Oh, oh my God, it's because they've yeah. seen the songs that are being made out of them. You know, have you seen like, well, they take aping. clips and then it's say it It's aping internet culture. And that's, we've created this because this is what people yeah. consume. Because that these are the oh, sort of things learning. that will go yeah. viral that we can talk about. And it's and a laugh. bit like the I'm sure you saw the Comic Sans post the other day, the Comic Sans post sent by the Conservative page on uh, Twitter. It's like was it was deliberately rubbish. Yeah? <laughs> it was deliberately rubbish and lame. So that people would go, ha ha, ha look how deliberately rubbish and lame this is. Well they didn't even, they didn't say it was deliberately rubbish. They thought it was actually rubbish. Mm. But then what happens? It goes viral. Engagement. Yeah. So the, the game is changing radically quickly. Yeah. So I want to say what point does that undermine politics but I think that's probably to miss the point we, we, we already live in a simplified political world yeah we're not going to really get beyond yeah. talking about get Brexit done or unleash Britain's potential or you know for the many not the few yeah mm -hmm. and yeah. and in many ways that's kind of the same as it ever was because politics is either sitting around the kitchen table and going what's best for my finances yeah and for my family or it is this kind of big, bold broadcast, mm. bring the nation together sort mm. of stuff. Mm. What, what I find interesting, so I was mentioning, I mentioned to Theo earlier, um, but I was reading an article on Wired about the Brexit Party's strategy. And basically what, what they were saying is obviously the rallies are really important to, um, to them. It's when, when Nigel Farage goes and speaks. Um, and what they'll do is they'll take clips of that and then they'll tweet it out sort of in real time. But they're being very selective with it. So what they're putting out on social is presenting the more like universal messaging that like more mm. people will relate mm. to. And actually what they're saying off camera that doesn't get shared is the slightly more racist rhetoric. You know, it is the more controversial topics. Um, and, you know, people are still there and reporters are still there quoting Farage, but that's not what's getting turned into social first content, which mm, is getting the attention of most people. Um, I suppose we live in a such a micro-targeted system anyway. But there's threats in broadcast systems, you know, the sort of magic yeah. bullet theory that people used to go on about. And some people still think all of this social media really does just instantly change opinions. But the sort of magic bullet sort of uh, cinema 1930s stuff and radio 
Well, you had the Nazis come along and fascists rise up in every country. Correlation does not equal causation. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're right, there is certainly issues in that you're presenting to one person something totally different to another. Mm -hmm. And you have, again, this polarization, this decline in community, I would also say, and in people just being on the same page is a big problem because you can have someone in Cornwall and someone in Caithness given totally different things from the same party and think of them like, oh, yeah, the conservatives, they're going to really crack down mm. on immigration. Mm. And then the person in the, in I don't know, in Cheltenham, they're like, yeah, the conservatives, very liberal sort of immigration system for pro, <laughs> yeah, well, Brexit, but it's going to be a liberal Brexit. Yeah. You know, it becomes no party line yeah. anymore, yeah, yeah, it's, and it is a nightmare situation then. But this is where the BBC and people need to come in and sort of highlight what the parties are actually about. Mm. But as more and more people get their information from social media, there's not any avenue for that. Yeah. So we probably do need, again, a bit like the Twitter, was it like news news choices? Following topics, yeah. Following topics, mm. maybe you have like a little outliner mm. of uh, various political parties. Yeah, it's just and what's a way to on. sort of open, open yourself up to new streams of information, really. And if people aren't seeking that out themselves out of habit, it's like a nice move from the platforms to um, force something on them, I guess, that's just a little bit broader than what they're used to. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to give them what's good for them, even though they're not asking for it. I completely agree. And, and it's interesting as well, the, the love of what we've spoken about, pre, I don't want to say predates Cambridge Analytica, but predates the Cambridge Analytica scandal, as it were. Looking on the other side of that, how do you think that's changed things? I don't want to say necessarily our political landscape, because we know that it's changed it massively, but our perceptions, I suppose, because it feels yeah. very much like that was really bad at the time and we were speaking about how bad it was and now it's become the new normal and we've become quite apathetic again now that we've got something <laughs> yeah. else to worry about. Yeah, I know, but this is the, that's the same as ever was. That's the, that's what happens is another story comes along. But the Cambridge, I mean, the great hack is a good example. It is the, what kind of the Obama was, the campaign was doing, but they were using an illegal data source, Cambridge Analytica, which mm. makes it totally reprehensible. Yeah. And people were never told about this. And that's the important thing. I mean, one half of me wants to just allow a completely unfettered situation to just roll out to see what sort of weird dystopia we end up in. <laughs> that's just morbid curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Make another no, book. I feel that. Like, I'm kind of right there with you. Because at the moment, you, you can like target low informational voters with fake news and just tell them that aliens have already landed and they're ruling mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you can do this right now. Mm -hmm. And then you could pass them by their gender and then pass them again by their location and organize them and create a weird like online army. You know, you can do all sorts of crazy things now. The reality is they're not quite there compared to some other places, the political parties. They're still, you know, generally quite conservative. They're targeting to broader groups than you imagine. Mm. But the capacity to do these things really needs to be put out there, I think, and people mm. need to appreciate it. So yeah, on the one hand, I want to let this experiment run out, but that would be very amoral. <laughs> and and in reality, we should regulate and highlight and educate people on, on what's going on. I don't think we need to ban targeted advertising, but I think we need to have educational campaigns. And for political advertising, I think we should reduce the scope of how it can be targeted to purely constituency level. Mm. And once at constituency level, I think that that should be it. And I wouldn't even allow for male or female targeting. That's, That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Do you agree with Facebook's stance then? Yeah. Refusing to fact check because their argument is um, they're going to allow lies to be spread with paid advertising because people have a right to know who's lying. I think it should, you should be allowed to lie, but it should flag up that it's a lie. Yeah. I think that would be quite... In I think that's kind of the system we have now. 
But equally, I don't know, it's a very difficult question mm. because... Because a lot of the parties have different the pe- opinions. People on if lie all or not. the time. So, for example, the other day wasn't it the the oh yeah the video the video that was edited by a, a kid in the Conservative HQ that made Keir Starmer look like he didn't have an answer. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's shocking. But I mean, that's done like every day by everyone ever. Yeah, including the Labour Party in 2017, loads. Everyone edits videos. And so now is that going to be counted as a lie? Because you're then, what are we going to end up with as the content that's capable of being sent? Are you not able to edit things? I mean, it's just getting to, we need to know where the line is, I would say, before we just come down and go, this is a lie and that's fact because Mm -hmm. it's so difficult to measure. Yeah, it is hard as well. Yeah, like it's difficult to measure when you're relying on Mm. um, like artificial intelligence to sort of flag these issues. And when it does get a bit like gray area-ish, it's really hard to do. But, you know, I saw that video and I thought, well, I know this isn't a deep fake, but it should be at least classed as a shallow fake. Because <laughs> yeah. it just seems like a bit not right. And if they're caring so much about deep fakes and the impact that can have, there's no reason a very smartly edited video can't have the same like detrimental impact to someone's opinion. I think uh, that the, the Facebook basically need to have some, they have teams that do this stuff. But they, for some reason, they should definitely have like a designated team for important pages. Yeah. Like it doesn't really matter if one person's sharing a fake thing. You know, it's when it's, you yeah. know, a huge page. Monitor the powerful. Yeah. Mon- monitor the powerful so that they can't just, you know, create fake videos yeah. and fake news. But also you've got to have some element of freedom. Yeah. I, I really, uh, I, I find it very hard. It's a very hard question. It's a bit like uh, the banning of the, the ads. It's difficult. Yeah. Thinking about it now as well, it strikes me, stuff like the Brexit bus for the NHS thing. Everybody can turn around now and say, oh, I that knew they weren't lie, telling yeah. the truth. That was a lie. But it strikes me a lot in politics that a lie only becomes a lie when it's been proved to be a lie. I mean, you could argue that politics is just mostly lies. <laughs> it's just, yeah, in yeah, fact, if you try and think of a concrete thing, if you can think of a promise made that's actually been kept in the last four years, I'll, you know, I'll give you <laughs> a five. But let's go on to the, uh, I want to talk more about the organic and paid relationship. Well, it's particularly organic reach. Does it change between individuals and political parties? Because not not just in, in terms of individuals, because one of the one things at the moment is brands are very much aware that organic reach on Facebook is in decline. Mm. You cannot reach the same amount of people for free that you could five, ten, seven years ago compared to uh, political parties who I guess are always around, always important, always relevant. Mm. How are they kind of... Well, I mean, can you imagine if you had your sort of toothbrush page but you had like an acolyte sort of group of say 200,000 people who really liked your toothbrushes Mm -hmm. and they would just spread your toothbrush information permanently all year, every year. Mm -hmm. Because that's kind of what the political parties have. It's a different situation. You know, the toothbrush pages, they don't actually, they have to really push to get anyone to do anything on their pages. Mm -hmm. Even if they have the most epically produced toothbrush documentary on the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas political parties have these groups of members, of party members, who who will come along and they will just do stuff for free, especially online. Now, obviously, our generation, we get accused of being like clicktivists or cyber activists and not really go <laughs> yeah, off on the, yeah. the streets. Mm. But in an ever more social world, that's not necessarily a problem. And it's, you know, why Labour did so well, because these people, if you give them the right stuff, if you give them the right messages, the right policy, the right ideas, 
you can activate them really quickly and organize them. And then, boom, mm. you've got thousands of people on the street. Yeah. You know, for a toothbrush manufacturer, what can they do other than just spend money to reach people? Yeah, yeah. But the dynamic has changed. You know, I am a firm believer in organic reach, but only for politics because mm. people are passionate and they care. Yeah. And the word of mouth works very yeah. efficiently. Mm. Whereas, you know, for a toothbrush manufacturer, <laughs> like Colgate or someone as a toothbrush. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. So, yeah, I pulled a stat this morning that 80% of Donald Trump's tweets turn into news headlines. So oh, he's wow. already getting that media coverage for free. And yeah, as we know, um, you know, a brand can only dream of 80% of what well, they put out, don't. 80% yeah. of their content getting turned into <laughs> a front page story. Yeah, yeah. That is incredible. And it's, it's, it's amazing how they fall into the trap, basically. And it's the same with like this sort of terrible, deliberately rubbish Tory mm. adverts. And that fake video is that, well, the fake video was seen by like 70,000 people, the, the Keir Starmer one. And then everyone started going on about it. And now it's got like 800,000 views. Mm. Mm. And suddenly mm. everyone's now talking about it. So it's kind of like evil genius. Mm. And that's that's what can happen. And we actually, again, we we create this. Mm. So mm. we need some self-control a little bit. It's hard to ask him without them being in the room, but I imagine, you know, being quite close to politics as you are, I'm interested to know what older politicians make of social or seeing this thing. So Corbyn, he's obviously very plugged into it, Boris too, but you sort of, you know, your, your uh, Mandelsons and your Hesseltines and stuff, are they... Do you, do you know any sort of how they kind of see it? Do you think Rhys Mogg knows that he's a meme? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, Rhys Mogg is the ultimate new meme. And actually, one of the weird pages I found ages ago was called like Rhys Mogg Teens for Rhys Moggian Memes or something. There was like back in like 2016 or something during when, when they thought Theresa May was going to go. No, like 2017. Reese Mogg was getting popular and there was this like there's like several weird meme Reese Mogg support groups this is the whole Mogmania wow. sort yeah, of thing that Mogmania came along thing. for a little bit yeah. Ed Miliband had a lot of very intense social media supporters Miller, Miller fandom it was almost creepy and so yeah you get these weird sorts of fandoms going on and I think like Alistair Campbell is, is pretty popular online but obviously he's found with the, the whole the whole Remain cause a new avenue for political rebirth like a phoenix from the flames he's mm -hmm. now you know, he's back on the TV news and stuff talking about politics. Mm -hmm. And social media has allowed him to be in that position because he already had a huge profile. You know, he's he sort of, he did a double bell curve. He was like super important. Twitter came along, was actually, I think he was quite popular on there originally, but this is like 2010 now, mm. isn't it? And then it's like a big dip when no one liked glare and now he's resurfaced. Yeah. But he's a symptom of the of the political times we're in, in that you have these old school politicians who still speak from the sidelines. And Blair's a great example of that. He's actually running some adverts at the moment via his foundation upon why Brexit's a bad idea. So mm. in a way, social media has allowed former and big scale politicians who who the public know to, to remain important for longer. Still part of the conversation. Yeah. Didn't think about that. that. What's uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And in, in that case, then, what's David Cameron up to these days? I know he's only hiding. He, 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 really no, he came out with that book, didn't he? He apparently uh, is in his little shepherd's hut sort of that was it, yeah, carriage yeah. in the back of his garden. <laughs> it do you know what? It's fascinating, though, because even on YouTube, it's, it's like uh. You only need to watch a couple of Rees Mogg videos to, uh, you know, not that I do that as a daily activity, but it's almost <laughs> like just to clear that up. But you only to need check to check your search history. The, you know, when you go deeper and deeper and deeper into YouTube, the kind of uh, 
like you said, the campaigning that other people do for you. So the videos, not from Rees-Mogg's account or not yeah. from the Conservative account, where it'd be like, watch Jacob Rees-Mogg tear into Oxford University, left this student, sort of, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that sensationalism yeah. that, yeah, that probably, only probably next up in the link will be a Shapiro, Ben Shapiro video <laughs> yeah, or something. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. I always thought, like, uh, yeah, like, I don't know, can we call them influencers if it's just a high-profile like they're high profile because they support a certain party. Mm. So my mind's jumping to this this one girl uh, who's quite popular in America because she's just a really intense Trump supporter um, yeah. that really supports like gun laws and her profile pictures like her holding two guns and you know, everyone hates her. But some people, <laughs> I think I some might people have seen, love her. I think her. I might have seen who you and mean. And she's got so many followers. Like it's ridiculous. It's like celebrity level fame. Uh... And I just think the impact that these people are having, whether or not they've got like how, however many followers she has, or whether it's you know more of a micro scale, mm, you mm. know, is that is that something that there, we're there, not accounting for? There is a growing body of research on like politics being like fandoms so like not even caring about politics you just like yeah bernie sanders is a great guy yeah. and corbyn yeah. yeah i just love him yeah like what do you, what do you know about him? nothing but he's he a nice guy. Like celebrity in a way. yeah, yeah. They are. corbyn speaking at glastonbury and i suppose that was yeah and i think that you know. that's a super interesting thing that spawned that is i think mainly due to social media i don't yeah, think you necessarily that. got this weird fandom kind of yeah. thing like the miller fandom and all these other politicians mm. we're talking yeah. about, they have their little followings. People who do upload videos going like, yeah, he's destroying a leftist or whatever. Mm. Yeah. And it's a totally new dynamic because that one guy who's a nobody in the middle of nowhere, who knows where, you know, he could get 100,000 views on his video yeah. and he he probably feels good about that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and what happens for our politics? Well, it's the polls have shifted. So that actually you can just be a nobody and still reach a lot of people. Anyone, anyone can be an opinion leader yeah, now. Yeah, definitely. What? Was it, what, is, what is the name of the congresswoman in America? Who, oh. uh, Cortez? Something called, oh, it's a double oh, barrel. Um, oh, you've made me lose her name. Knock the house down. Uh, she had that Netflix show, Knock the house Ocasio down. Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. So she is one of like the key examples of someone who's got an absolute avid fan base. Oh yeah, she's super popular. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just seems a... to be like even of her. Like, I saw people this Halloween dressing up as her um, really? and like doing impressions of her interrogating Mark Zuckerberg, and that was the <laughs> Halloween costume, which I thought was absolutely inspired. But it just goes to show that even people, you know, she's not like a president. She's not running for president. She is just a congresswoman, and she has like such a huge fan base. But yeah, um, are the people she, following her going to do anything? She's uh, she's part of like a big movement though. This sort of new left, or or sort of you have like left tube, you have bread bread tube is I think what they refer to themselves as <laughs> bread tube. So, so you know how like all these alt right YouTubers, uh, Ben Shapiro, etc. Well, now you have this sort of emergence, the grassroots of a bunch of sort of left wing YouTubers, mm. and she's actually she's been on a H Bomber guys sort of uh, hour multiple hour long gaming stream to raise money for a trans charity mm -hmm. so she's again you know like one side rises another rises to to yeah. face it social media does actually i think have a weird mm -hmm. sort of hybridity a weird sort of yin yang balance mm. but for too long i suppose it was in the hands of the powerful and i think it, to some extent if you are a if you actually do want to change things if you want to go and get people to know about something you can go on social media, get people to organise and change things. Yeah. Brings me on to the younger generations and, and future generations and their exposure to politics because it's probably the same for a lot of us. Politics for me and my exposure to it was, well, for, for parents, but I think mm. sort of shaped my kind of political viewpoints and that starts very early on. 
But when we talk in a media sense, it would be question time and the newspaper was there for you to read the first five pages or not. Now, I wonder how this... How how this affects future generations and their political viewpoints? Is Mm. is it the case that now we will have the first generation who don't decide which part, don't vote for the party that their parents vote for and vote for the Mm. party that, you know, gets most likes Mm. on Facebook in a way? I I wonder whether the volatility that we live in is to to do with social media or whether it's because of the Great Recession or that sort of stuff, you Mm. know, political problems. They happened around the same time. Yeah, I I hope it's a mix because if it is to do with social media, then there's not really very much we can do to solve it because I think we're not going to be getting rid of social media no matter how much angry boomers may There is um, one (laughs) year between the financial crash in England and the release of the first smartphone, Apple. Exactly. There's one it's, year it's, it's it. amazing, isn't it? Facebook came out a few months after that. We've lived through two very important revolutions that have, I think, really made us appreciate the world in which we live. Yeah. And I don't think, though, you know, people go like, oh, you lived at such a great time to the boomer generation. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I much prefer mm. now. Now's way better. We got the, the internet is great. Yeah. The internet is really good. Yeah, I might not be able to afford a house, but I can pretend I have a house mm. on multiple computer games. <laughs> I was doing that ten Instagram years old on the Sims, yeah. <laughs> yeah, on the Sims. On the Sims I've got a whole family. I do so. love the, the okay my favourite meme at the moment is the okay boomer meme. Yeah. So it's just a way of like patronising people who are older than you where they say anything they won't even be a boomer it's just like okay boomer and boomer actually is it oh, was it was it UKIP or the Brexit party or I can't remember which party it was but they are uh, they're creating memes designed for boomers so they're like really? in the actual yeah. aesthetic design of them they're incredibly simple <laughs> like the memes we were yeah. all sharing in 2009 oh, they've words. created those and targeting they're targeting them at boomers sort of making fun of um like mm. really like pc left-wing snowflake millennials and then yeah. that's another way of sort of encouraging that mindset i guess and just subliminal messaging first rule of politics is to know your audience then. yeah um, I, th- I think that's world of social media. <laughs> I mean, obviously, in terms of this boomer thing, you got to remember that by the time we're sixty, we'll probably be blamed for how bad things are. Right. It'll yeah. be okay, millennial or whatever, <laughs> and then eventually it'll be oh. okay, zoomer. I kind of resent that because we're here fighting against it, and it's happening anyway. I think I know it's so interesting. They'll complain Theo. we didn't do enough. Look at you. We we could be out. Why are we doing this? No, I know. No. <laughs> with these big cameras and lights we I could totally so. be be out protesting like i i first like hooked onto politics around the same time i started using social media heavily mm-hmm. and i do think that people who are younger will start to listen less to how their parents are influencing them and will start to be shaped by social but that that intrigues me because i was just about to say as well I, I, I completely agree for for starters but it strikes me now that social could i, I don't know it would happen but that that is surely grounds to reduce the voter age regardless of Brexit or anything else, because that must be quite frustrating, quite irritating to be part of this mm. political discourse on social media, on your timeline from 14, 15, yeah. 16. Although I would wonder like how many are actually just, like you say, clicktivists and like members of the fandom, but are actually, you know, if they were handed the vote, would they know what to do with it? That's actually a really great point. I've never actually thought about it like that. That that obviously, I think we have a lot more politics now than the past. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's harder to avoid politics in the past. If you wanted to avoid politics, don't turn the telly on and run away from mum and dad exactly. when they're talking about yeah. politics. 
now you're you're thrown politics all the time and people are probably forming opinions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on all sorts of things and so when you say it like that yeah then a 16 year old who's on Facebook and Twitter well probably not on Facebook probably on Instagram or whatever <laughs> Snapchat um, all day and they're exposed to political opinions well maybe they should have a vote because yeah. that that is they are then in that position of, of being yeah. yeah I think maybe that's a good way of thinking about it yeah. I would disagree did you see that there was this Oxford academic or was it Cambridge I can't remember who said we should reduce the voting level age to zero yeah okay that's <laughs> a bit of that a sort of <laughs> that'd just be like <laughs> me having like... a kid and then like taking it to the polls and <laughs> yeah, putting yeah. A, a pen in its little exactly. hand and making it vote the same as me yeah, it's yeah. just like you get an extra vote <laughs> until they're like 12 <laughs> so I suppose 16 is a good age because I think you can formulate complex opinions by that age mm -hmm. yeah uh, any younger and I think it's yeah. a bit silly I don't think that much maturing happens between 16 and 18 I'll be honest <laughs> but I'll be honest I, I do remember a zeitgeist at the time of it was the TV debates with Clegg. I don't know yeah. if it was Gordon, it, I, I can't remember if it was Gordon Brown or Ed Miliband on the scene at that time, but it was Clegg, David Cameron, mm -hmm. pre, you know, PM. Yeah. And there was a feeling that, oh, right, okay, I don't even think I was 18 yet, yeah, but young people are getting I think quite, you're young talking about talking 2010, about aren't you? Are you must have been it, yeah, because I, I would have just it was, left so school, It wasn't 2015, because that was 2010, uh, exactly, yeah. So it was 2010. Mm. I also remember that was my first election I could vote in, because I think I was 18 Right, time. right. Um, oh my God, I just remember feeling I couldn't wait to vote. I was yeah. so sort of, you know, yeah. it was chalk and cheese the apathy now. It was just like, right. Is that when David Cameron was thinking. campaigning? He wasn't PM at the time, was he? He was no. campaigning to be. But I, yeah. I, I met yeah. him when he was campaigning and I was 14 and it will have been about 2010 because my dad was interviewing him. And I remember like thinking about it then. I was asking my dad all kinds of questions and I remember thinking, oh, okay, like one day I'll get to have the vote. Mm. And the, the, see, this is what worries me about being of that age because I didn't know anything about politics. And okay, maybe people these days know more at that age. But my thinking at that time was, oh, I've met David Cameron. He seems nice. I heard him talk on the telly. I'd vote for him. And I was yeah. sort of looking it out for the results of the election. And mm. when he got made prime minister, it was like, yay, I met him. He's prime minister. <laughs> and these days, God, if I could go back in time. But 14 that is, though, isn't it? Yeah. 16, I think, when you've sort yeah. of maybe that point of leaving school and college. Because, yeah. well, I mean, if and you think about it. social media would have changed that, I think. Uh, social media uh, I will just add that. that some people, you know, they don't really think about the way they vote, even when they're like 70. Yeah. You know? yeah so, and you're not going to be taking away their vote. Yeah. So I think like, yeah, not everyone needs to be a super well-informed voter. If anything, I think we should be allowed the opportunity to turn off politics. I think there's too much politics in many ways yeah. now. Yeah. It's very hard to avoid, as we were I think saying. It, it can be really counterproductive as well. Like people have been so sick of Brexit that they stopped listening to what was happening. So actually yeah. they're not as well informed, yeah, which is more dangerous. It's ironic, isn't it? Because that had the biggest turnout of any election since, I don't, can't remember, some, something for 100 years. Yeah. And now people are like, bloody hell, not more politics. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. another not election. Another yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the future then, Tristan, to sort of end, wrap up on a final point, where, where is the future headed? It's such a loaded question. Well, but it goes, is, uh, it go, are I we going to be okay? This suppose uh, it goes back to my, do we let the experiment run out or do we regulate? late now so I'll do both I think like the more exciting vision of the future is like yeah dystopian robotic campaigners who know exactly what you think and feel yeah. and will basically effectively torture you 
to choose, to change your vote towards whatever the robot think is 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 good. And it, very black mirror. Yeah, it's so it's, it's like a sort of black mirror, like all based mm. upon your ta- data and you're being recorded twenty four seven, and you can't say anything. That is totally possible given the technology that's available. But I think we, you can see the the, the cogs are turning, and we're going to start regulating. We're going to start making sure a bit like television, you can't have like mm. political parties advertising on television. We'll do something like that, and hopefully, it will all normalize. Social media is a really great opportunity for humanity. You can talk to anyone on the face of the planet within seconds and brings people together. Now, I blame recession, economic problems, and general political malaise for driving people apart. But that doesn't mean that social media can't actually be the glue that actually heals the divisions mm. if we if we start to treat it like that. Mm. Yeah. But uh, to do that, we've got to change a few things. Yeah. Let's see after this general election, see yeah. where we left that with. Tristan, thank you very much. Covered a lot of topics there, obviously. And, well, either we'll see you again in this dystopian world or <laughs> we'll still be in the I deadlock that we are at the moment. Yeah, but, thank yeah. you. I will say we're going to invite you to join our Facebook group if you are on Facebook. Oh, great. Um, and then people can ask you questions if they have any. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's thank you for pleasure. coming pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson. 